Hello everyone and welcome to the Conqueror's Podcast, episode 6.2, The Nubian Pharaohs. First of all, I wanted to apologize to all you guys for the long period of silence and the time it took to release this episode. The last two months were busy, with exams and paper due for the end of the semester being added to my normal three-job schedule. That meant that I basically had zero time for anything other than working or studying. Now that I'm done with these, I hope I can get back to our normal schedule. Before I begin this episode, I just wanted to give a heads up that, despite the fact that in this episode we're gonna talk about two great conquerors, details will be lacking. That's because relatively few sources that cover them and the 25th dynasty in general survive. Still, when doing my research on who were the great conquerors of history, I stumbled upon the 25th dynasty of Egypt, and I can honestly say that I didn't know much about this dynasty, let alone that it was a native Nubian dynasty that conquered Egypt. The latter simply wowed me, because from what I knew, for most of their history, the Nubians were either vassals or subjects of their great northern neighbors. A modern comparison that immediately popped in my mind was if the Ukraine managed to conquer Russia, or Scotland conquering England. Sounds crazy, right? That at one point, the Nubians not only broke away from Egyptian rule, but were also able to conquer Egypt, meant that I simply had to make an episode dedicated to these rulers who were responsible for that conquest. Kashta and Pai, no matter how lacking are the sources. After all, as I said in the first episode, the main reason behind this podcast for me is first of all, to tell the story of the lesser-known great conquerors of history, and the Nubian pharaohs definitely fit the bill. So, let's start. Last episode, we covered the history of ancient Egypt, from the death of Tahatmos III, the last golden age of ancient Egypt under Seti I and his son Ramses II, to the final decline of native Egyptian power. We then went on to cover the history of the land that came to be known as Nubia or Kush and its people, from the early days of human settlement in the area, through the period of mostly Egyptian domination, to the eventual decline of Egyptian power there, a decline that, after centuries of Egyptian dominance, allowed the Nubians to start acting with increasing autonomy and think about regaining their independence. If we want to look for a single event that marked the beginning of Nubia's independence, well, there wasn't any. There was no great native rebellion to throw off the Egyptian yoke, no widespread discontent against Egyptian rule, and no civil war between pro- and anti-Egyptian factions. It was simply Egypt's decline. As I mentioned in the previous episode, after the division of Egypt, Upper Egypt and Nubia fell under the control of the high priest of Amun in Thebes, and soon, the Nubians simply began ignoring the new boss at Thebes. Just a small note here, in the previous episode, I mentioned that the 23rd dynasty broke away from the 22nd dynasty and established itself in Thebes. I then went on to say that Thebes fell under the control of the high priest of Amun. So just to make it clear, these two were the same. The 23rd dynasty merged the priestly positions and authorities of the cult of Amun with the dynasty in order to boost their legitimacy and authority. A major example of this was the appointment of a member of the dynasty, usually the daughter of the pharaoh, to the position of God's wife of Amun. This position was the highest ranking priestess of the Amun cult and will play a major part in the 25th dynasty's ascension later on. 
Now, if the rulers of Thebes had the power to enforce their authority over them, the Nubians would have probably remained content under Egyptian rule. But with the Egyptians barely able to take care of themselves at this point, I would say that Nubian autonomy and independence became more of a necessity than a national cause. Also, by this point, the Nubians were throughout the Egyptianized as the centuries-long Egyptian rule had a deep cultural, religious, and maybe even ethnic impact on Nubia. Some historians even speculate that for many Nubians, the later conquest was not seen by the Nubians as a conquest of Egypt, but rather as a reunification of the empire that had once ruled over both people. It was during this period, at the beginning of the 8th century BC, that a man named Alara emerged as the leader of the new Nubian state that had begun to form. The center of this kingdom was to be Napata, the kingdom of the Egyptian province of Kush. But despite what is described as a long reign, and the reverence in which he was held by his descendants as the founder of the dynasty, we know almost nothing about the guy, as no contemporary sources about him survive. What we can say with a high level of certainty, however, is that Alara embodied the new Nubia. He was probably a member of the new heavily Egyptianized nobility of Nubia that had formed under the centuries-long Egyptian rule. He was based in Napata, the Egyptian-built administrative center of the province, and under him and his descendants, Egyptian religion would remain the official religion, with Amun keeping his status as the chief deity of the kingdom. In fact, the most sacred site of the kingdom would be none other than Jebel Barkal, where the great Egyptian pharaohs of old had constructed a great temple dedicated to the god Amun to serve as a spiritual center for the province. The worship and promotion of the god Amun in Nubia provided Alara and his descendants with a unifying tool for their people, and would later serve their political ambitions when their eyes turned north. Clearly a capable and energetic ruler, while Egypt to the north was getting weaker and fragmented, Alara organized his new kingdom, established and drilled its army, and steadily expanded its borders. After a presumably long reign, the throne of the small but rising kingdom passed to his brother. That brother, and this episode's first great conqueror, was a man called Kashta. Again, despite what he would go on to achieve, very little is known about the majority of Kashta's reign and conquest. All we have to rely on are a few surviving fragments of archaeological evidence and records. Kashta ascended the Napatan throne sometime during the middle of the 8th century BC, and under him, the kingdom of Napata continued to expand and prosper. He probably started with expanding the kingdom across the rest of Upper Nubia, and although we don't know the exact extent of these conquests, in my opinion, based on the available sources at least, and due to later events, it is likely that Kashta was responsible for most of the dynasty's expansion across Nubia. I say this because he was probably the last ruler of the dynasty who was able to focus that much attention on Nubia. Later pharaohs would be far busier with the affairs in Egypt, and specifically, with a certain new expansive neighbor to the northeast. And so, most of the kingdom's conquest in Nubia probably occurred during Kashta's reign, which would mean that his campaigns extended well beyond the fifth cataract of the Nile and across the rest of Nubia. The Napatan kingdom thus extended across a territory similar to that of the former Kerma kingdom. It is here that we get to the tricky part of Kashta's reign, because sometime during his reign, his eyes turned north. While surviving records portray this interest as one that came out of pious, religious motives, that is, to protect the temple and priests of Amun and Thebes, as you probably already know, 
a ruler's motives are never that innocent. In a society like ancient Egypt, there is no doubt that religion played a major role. But for it to be the sole reason for such an ambitious undertaking? Eh, probably not. Remember, at this point, while his kingdom was on the rise, Egypt was a fragmented country on the one hand, and rich and fertile on the other. And it was right there ripe for the taking for an ambitious ruler. But Kashta, the Egyptianized king that he was, was aware of Egypt's history. He knew that the native Egyptians, disunited and weak as they were, wouldn't look kindly on a foreigner coming to rule over them, and that such a ruler may actually cause them to unite. His solution? Kashta worked hard to not be portrayed as a Nubian king coming to conquer Egypt and make it part of a Nubian kingdom. Instead, he acted as the heir of the ancient pharaohs of Egypt, servant of the great god Amun. He wasn't coming to conquer Egypt, he was coming to reunite the two lands and restore the empire. The priests of Amun in Nubia seem to have worked hard on grooming this portrayal, no doubt in coordination with the great temple in Thebes, on whom Kashta declared himself as its protector. And through propaganda, no doubt backed by military power, Kashta began pushing the borders and the influence of his kingdom north. And although there is no evidence to support direct control over Thebes itself, at the very least, Thebes was now a vassal of the Napatan kingdom, with perhaps an Napatan garrison permanently stationed there. Most, if not all of the kingdoms and city-states of Lower Egypt, also seem to have sent tribute to the court at Napata. One big question Egyptologists have yet to give a definite answer to is whether Kashta ever held the title of pharaoh. Those who argue for say that he obviously acted in the manner of an Egyptian pharaoh, ruled over large swaths of Egyptian territory, and basically controlled the highest religious institution of Egypt. On the other hand, he only controlled part of Upper Egypt, his capital remained Napata, and he doesn't seem to have followed one of the main customs of a pharaoh, marrying his sister. Now again, I know that details, especially the juicy ones that we're all here for, of Kashta's conquests, battles, and sieges are lacking. Still, I felt that I had to include him in this podcast, because in historical perspective, we simply can't ignore his achievements. In Upper Nubia alone, he doubled his kingdom's territory, bringing unity to Nubia it had not seen in more than 700 years. He further went on to expand into Lower Nubia and Upper Egypt, bringing Nubian hegemony over Upper Egypt and Thebes, capital of the great Egyptian dynasties. When Kashta died around 747 BC, the throne passed to his son, Pai, our second great conqueror for this episode. Pai, son of Kashta, was probably born in the royal palace of Napata. We don't know anything about his early years. As prince of the warlike Nubians, he probably took part in his father's campaigns across Nubia and Egypt. We also know that as pharaoh, he was very devout in his worship of the god Amun, something that probably developed in his childhood. He also loved horses. A lot. Later on, he would routinely scold people who abused horses, demanded horses as gifts, and had his favorite horses buried with him. As the oldest surviving son of Kashta was his royal wife Pebatma, he succeeded his father to the throne. In the first half of his reign, Pai seems to have maintained his father's policy of a mostly hands-off rule in Egypt, while slowly increasing his involvement and influence in Egyptian affairs. This involvement greatly increased, however, when the king arranged to have his sister, Aminiridis, adopted by Shepenopet I of the 23rd dynasty, 
who held the title of God's wife of Amun as her successor. This act brought Napatan control to a whole new level, and by his 18th year, we can say with a high degree of certainty that Pai was now master of Egypt as far north as the city of Hat Nesut, commonly known as Heracleopolis. But while things went relatively easy for Kashta and Pai in the south, the north was a different story. Resistance there among the local rulers to Nubian encroachment had been building up, most notably in the city-state of Sais in the western delta. There, at about the 18th year of Pai's rule, that is, around 729 BC, a man of Libyan descent named Tefnacht had risen to power and established a local dynasty that would later be called the 24th dynasty. An obviously capable man of his own, Tefnacht managed to form a coalition of local delta leaders under his command and took the title Great Chief of the West. He then went on to capture many cities and towns of the delta region, adding them to the coalition. With the delta under his control, he now set his eyes on Middle and Upper Egypt. His forces then marched south and managed to conquer Memphis and besiege Heracleopolis. For some reason, as these events were unfolding, Pai seems to have remained mostly idle. He was only alarmed when Nimlot, governor of the city of Hermopolis, chose to switch sides and join Tefnacht's cause. Now, some of you are probably asking, wait, didn't he say like a minute ago that there's no sources? Where's he bringing all this stuff? Well, here we come to a notable exception of the no surviving Nubian sources, because the coming campaign seems to have been important enough for Pai that he had it engraved on a giant granite stele which he placed in the most sacred location of his kingdom, the temple of Amun at Jebel Barkal. This stele, called the Victory Stele, consists of 159 lines and provides us with a detailed description of the campaign. A major theme in the text is Pai's own depiction of the following campaign as a holy war. It wasn't for the sake of conquest, of course not. It was his duty and devotion to Amun that demanded this war. Before battles, Pai would command his soldiers to cleanse themselves ritually, while he himself would offer sacrifices to Amun. Upon receiving the news of Nimlot's betrayal, Pai immediately sent reinforcements to the northern garrisons with the instruction of holding back the enemy while he gathered the main force. When he was ready, he sent them north, and in two battles near the Nile, one being fought in the vicinity of Hermopolis itself, the Napatan forces were victorious. They then went on to besiege the city, trapping Nimlot inside. Despite these successes, Pai is described as being displeased with his forces, for allowing too many enemy soldiers to retreat from these battles. And so, after celebrating an important religious festival in Thebes, Pai went north himself and took command of the campaign and the siege. After five months, Nimlot offered his submission and a large tribute asking for Pai's forgiveness and mercy. Despite his betrayal, Pai accepted and spared Nimlot and the city. The one thing that Pai wouldn't let fly, however, was the state of Nimlot's stables. You heard right, the one thing that Pai is noted to have been very pissed off by and that caused him to publicly scold Nimlot wasn't the fact that she betrayed him. It was the conditions of his stables. As humorous as it sounds to us, it was probably a part of the king's royal propaganda, as the Nubians held horses in a very high regard, and for the king to portray himself as a merciful ruler on the one hand, but one that wouldn't allow for such disrespect to his people's revered animal, was actually good PR. He then continued his march north, until meeting resistance in the town of, stay with me here, 
Pisichem Chepere. It is recorded that not only was the town heavily garrisoned, but that the garrison was commanded by Tefnacht's son. After what seems to have been a short siege, the town fell. While no captives or massacres are reported, the stele is silent regarding Tefnacht's son's fate. Pai had the town's treasury confiscated and its granaries emptied, before continuing north towards Memphis. After taking the towns of Maidum and Elisht, the king besieged the great northern city. The stele records that Pai offered the town and its garrison to surrender peacefully, claiming that he had no intention of conquering the city and only wanted to make offerings in its temples. The city's garrison, however, reinforced with an additional 8,000 troops sent by Tefnacht, refused the king's offers. The siege of Memphis would serve as the climactic battle of both the campaign and of Pai's reign. It took place during Pai's 19th year on the throne. Pai knew that Memphis would be a hard nut to crack. Adding to the large garrison, the city was surrounded by water and defended by strong, high walls. Heeding the advice of his commanders and trusting in Amun's protection, Pai decided on a direct assault on the city's harbor. Gathering every worthy ship he could find, the king launched a massive assault on the city's harbor, which quickly overwhelmed its defenders. Unlike previous sieges, this time, Pai wasn't in the forgiving mood. The city was plundered, and many of its people and defenders were either slain or taken prisoner. The city was then ritually purified and had its treasury and plunder taken away, with much of it being dedicated to the gods. The fall of Memphis, along with the many troops lost, brought an end to Tefnacht's coalition. Soon, all the northern rulers began arriving in person, offering their submission to Pai in groups. Well, almost all of them. Tefnacht refused to come and surrender in person to Pai. For some reason, Pai allowed for this and was instead content to send his emissaries to Saiz to receive his submission there. Although outright annexation of their territories would only be achieved by his successor, quite easily in the aftermath of Pai's campaign, Pai was now the uncontested master of Egypt and had firmly established the power of the 25th dynasty in that land. And although he may have claimed the title long before, Pai was now truly the pharaoh of Egypt. With his campaign over, Pai boarded his royal ship, which was loaded with spoils and captives, and sailed south toward Napata. On his way, he probably stopped at Thebes and made offerings to Amun at the great temple there. But in any case, it's not mentioned in the stele. What nobody knew is that it was the last time Pharaoh Pai would ever set foot in Egypt. Upon reaching Napata, Pai would remain in his homeland for the remaining 13 years of his reign and continue to rule Egypt through the governors and rulers he appointed, and most importantly, through his sister in Thebes. As to why he chose to never return to Egypt, we just don't know. One big reason, though obviously not enough, was that Egypt mostly remained quiet for the rest of his reign, and there was no serious threat to his power. On the domestic front, Pai encouraged trade across the Nile River, most of which was now under his rule. In terms of law and legislation, as mentioned before, he followed his father's policy of allowing the Egyptians to mind their own business, so long that they knew who's the boss. He also proved to be an energetic builder, launching numerous construction projects across Egypt on a scale not seen in centuries. Temples and monuments were restored, and new ones constructed. In his capital of Napata, 
the already great temple at Jebel Barkal was expanded. He also notably restored another long-lost Egyptian tradition, pyramid building. Yet, after almost 1,000 years since the last Egyptian pyramid was constructed, Pai ordered the construction of his own pyramid complex near Napata, the biggest of whom would serve as part of his tomb. This complex represented the man and his dynasty, as it included both Nubian and Egyptian influences. With this, a tradition of pyramid building had begun that would be followed not just by his dynasty, but by later Nubian dynasties. And boy did the Nubians grow to love pyramids. Although none would be on the scale of the pyramids of Giza, today, the number of surviving Nubian pyramids is more than twice that number in Egypt. So from now on, when you hear the word pyramid, think of Nubia, not just Egypt. Around 714 BC, Pai, the first Nubian pharaoh, died. He was succeeded by his son, Shebitku. He was buried in the tomb complex he had constructed for himself, with even his funeral being a mix of the two cultures. The body was mummified and buried with Egyptian rites. It was then laid on a bed in the middle of the chamber. The latter, along with the burial of his favorite horses with him, represented the Nubian elements of the funeral. What Pai and Kashta had achieved would have probably sounded impossible just a couple of generations ago. The land of the Nile was now ruled from Nubia. And not only that, but its rulers now ruled as pharaohs, sacred representatives of the great god Amun. Their authority now extended from the shores of the Mediterranean to the fifth cataract of the Nile and beyond. The priests of the great temple of Amun in Thebes now prayed for their success and their glory. Their dynasty would go on to rule Egypt for more than 50 years after Pai's death. After bringing Egypt firmly under their control, they attempted what the new kingdom had accomplished, to expand into Asia. This, however, put them on a collision course with the aforementioned great and expansive power that was in the midst of consolidating its rule over the Levant, Assyria. That clash will be covered in our next episode, which will take us back to Assyria and to the last great Assyrian conqueror, Esra Hadun. That Esra Hadun's greatest conquest is going to be Egypt gives you the answer to the question of who won that conflict. Still, Nubia as an entity would survive and be ruled by Kashta and Pai's descendants for decades to come. Its successor states will also endure for centuries as independent states. But that story will have to wait for another time, as the story of the Nubian pharaohs comes to its end. In the meantime, I'd like to thank all listeners and supporters of the podcast, and again apologize for the irregular schedule. If you like the podcast, spread the word. It helps a lot. The podcast is available on all platforms and on YouTube. See you next time.